Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby. Welcome to this week's Telecast. On this week's show, my guests are Janet Hanvissering, Senior Vice President of Programme Development and Production at Nat Geo Wild, and Ellen Windermuth, CEO of Waterbear Network. Plus, I catch up with Laura Marshall, CEO of Icon Films and Chair of this year's Wild Screen Festival. And K7 Media's Gertz Lesis looks at the programming trend towards content with a purpose. It's all coming up on this week's Telecast. This week's show is sponsored by Moore Kingston Smith, the specialist advisors and accountants for TV, film and radio companies. Their dedicated office of over 100 media specialists is based in the heart of Medialand in the West End of London. They understand the TV industry and what keeps TV bosses awake at night. The Moore Kingston Smith team works closely with many trade bodies such as APA, WFTV, Animated Women and British Arrows. They've delivered many high-profile industry projects, including advice regarding the qualification of British films and preparation of applications to the DCMS, liaising with national authorities and monitoring projects and applications to the Foreign Entertainers Unit, as well as the certification of production costs for film, television, animation and video games productions. As one of the UK's top 20 accounting and advisory firms, Moore Kingston Smith provides a complete service offering to the TV industry, including corporate finance, tax structuring, employment service, and efficient personal tax planning. They're also a member firm of Moore Global Network Limited, meaning they're well-placed to support you and your business with any international requirements you may have. To find out more, just search Moore Kingston Smith. On this week's show, I'm delighted to welcome Janet Hanvissering and Ellen Windermuth. As Senior Vice President of Development and Production at National Geographic, Janet oversees the entire natural history slate and animal content across the channel, as well as Nat Geo Wild and Disney+. She's responsible for more than 200 hours of programming commissioned each year for broadcast in 166 countries, 330 million homes and 34 languages worldwide. Ellen is the CEO of Waterbear Network, overseeing the strategy and direction of the new interactive video-on-demand platform dedicated to life on Earth. Prior to Waterbear, Ellen was owner and CEO of Off The Fence, having founded the company in 1994. Under her leadership, Off The Fence acquired, produced and co-produced over 6,000 hours of content. Ellen is a seasoned executive producer and distributor and has produced over 500 hours to date herself. So, welcome to the show, Janet and Ellen. Hello, Justin. Hello. Great to have you both on the show this week. Janet, starting with you, if we may, we're talking this week about content with a purpose, and natural history is the living embodiment of that phrase, really. Presumably, natural history production has been one of the hardest hit in the TV industry due to international travel, etc., being restricted. 
What's been your experience of keeping the content pipeline for Nat Geo Wild open these past few months? It's been challenging. You know, I have a whole new uh, memory system of uh, what are the hot spots around the world, uh, a skill set that I'm probably not happy about. But uh, it's it's been challenging. But we've uh, had some remarkable um, luck, and I think it's all due to the fact that our Disney um, uh, safety and security uh, and our production management team has done an outstanding job uh, in all of our um, protocol safety protocols. But also um, what we've done is really utilize in the pure natural history world, utilize in-country talent uh, and really called upon all the vast uh, number of uh, in-country cinematographers to, you know, to take on uh, the job uh, via, you know, some of our, you know, we have an, uh, a system that actually you can virtually have our EP talk to the cinematographer and review cuts uh, remotely. So we've used all the tools possible um, and, you know, everything from, you know, empowering more in-country talent to embracing new technologies. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately the smaller on the ground team has really been um, great for our programs, which we have actually been able to shoot something for all of our shows during this time. And presumably this is leading to a bit of a boom in to in-country production, as you say, in, in perhaps places that had had limited involvement in wildlife production, or, or, or is it just a case of they've perhaps taken on more responsibility now? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, Justin, what I'm really, you know, proud to say is that we had a mentoring program already in place with our project Queens. And we had four in-country uh, filmmakers that we were mentoring. And, you know, uh, when we weren't able to go to Kenya, we were able to, you know, mentor via um, remote, um, you know, meeting uh, software and also um, have them take on more responsibility. And sometimes, you know, when you have a situation that may not seem optimal, uh, it's those uh, less optimal situations then uh, bring opportunities for people. And in our case, it was a great opportunity for people to rise to the occasion and take a step up. Uh, whereas if you had seasoned cinematographers in the area uh, or on location, maybe they would have just deferred to the seasoned person. But when you have to, um, you know, work with, you know, the situation that we're in, um, it's been wonderful. People rise to the occasion. I think we have some incredible new talent that will feed in uh, without the hand-holding in the future. So I'm really proud of that. That's a positive byproduct, isn't it, of this pandemic? So Nat Geo Wild content is now becoming available on Disney Plus, of course. How has that affected your role and the content that you're commissioning? Well, uh, you know, um, our my group, uh, the Natural History uh, team, um, has actually gone through a transformation over the last two years. Um, we now create a uh, natural history program, animal uh, programs for all three platforms, not just NetGeo Wild as a network, but also for NGC, our sister channel, and ultimately uh, Disney+. Plus. So we're almost working in a studio model where if it's an animal, we produce it. And has that affected the type of content you're commissioning? Is it a broader range of, of natural history programming? And presumably there's there's different format issues that you've got to, to think about there in terms of length of programming, et cetera. Absolutely. You know, that's two different questions. Yeah, I'll address the first one. Um, yeah, so there are three, I would say three uh, areas, if I had to bucket, you know, what kind of programs I'm looking for for each of the platforms. Wild, uh, let me first address, is... Uh, really a series-based uh, um, network. We are looking for franchise. We are looking for returnable series that, you know, uh, that can come uh, season after season. Dr. Pohl is one of those examples. Um, then on NGC, we're looking for what I would say, um, you know, that uh, blue chip, um, you know, or slightly uh, less uh, of that more landmark blue chip. But, you know, in information-filled uh, natural history series or specials, especially those that align with our National Geographic Society mission 
and scientist. Um, Secrets of the Whales was one of them. It features Brian Scarry, who is um, one of our esteemed uh, photographer and Rolex uh, award winner. And we went around the world looking at different whale species and their culture. And then you have uh, our Disney uh, Plus, which I would say is our flagship. It's it's our, um, what I would say, the premium uh, platform. So it's, you know, when people say, you know, what do you want to put on there? We would want to put on things that we would consider our Mandalorian of National Geographic, the best of the best, the landmark, the premium. So those are the three different um, deciphering mechanisms for the three platforms. We're just busier. <laughs> I can imagine. Obviously, we've got amazing success of Disney Plus, and and obviously, you know, there's all of these changes happening within natural history as a the natural history sector as a as a result of the pandemic. How do you see the natural history TV industry evolving as a result of all of these changes? It's going to continue to grow. There clearly is a demand for it, and now you have, um, you know, four or five huge streaming platforms that are, you know, devouring this, you know, content. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it's stopping. Uh, and I think that they realize that it really hits that four quadrant, the family, everyone in the family can watch it. It's considered safe television. It's also evergreen. Uh, and it appeals to, you know, um, to all, you know, both male and female. So I think it's it's a multi-user uh, program. And I think that people realize, you know, that it's it's great for their platform and, the, and, and also uh, messaging uh, about what's happening on the planet is also important for all these streamers. I noticed your YouTube channel has got over 3.4 million subscribers, which is uh, I was really impressed with. We, we saw Quibi fold last week. What role does short-form content play in the Nat Geo Wild content ecosystem? The success of Nat Geo Wild's uh, YouTube channel is really, um, you know, I can't take credit for that because that's under Ashley Kalina, who's doing a marvelous job of this. And, um, you know, I think the success of that channel is taking the content that we're already making on our linear channel and then making it appropriate for our YouTube channel. And um, it's interesting because the uh, demographics uh, is pretty remarkable. It's, you know, the age group, you're talking about, you know, the main age group is 18 to 34. Our linear channel is quite older. Um, and the subscribers, you're looking at 74% male. Uh, but a lot of people still, the majority of the people coming on this channel are mostly just you know, people dipping in uh, and, you know, from suggested videos or just, you know, kind of saying, I want to see a lion. Um, and, you know, it's it's great because it is a mechanism almost like, hey, it's a taster. If you like this, you can get more on the actual linear channel. So it serves uh, two purposes, those who are actual YouTube subscribers and viewers and consumers, but it also is a way for uh, people to get to know uh, in little small amounts, uh, what we're offering on our linear channel. It's a younger audience as well that's discovering natural history content, which is which is great. Ellen, coming to you, welcome to the show. So many telecast listeners will have read about the plans for Water Bear Network already, but uh, for those who haven't, can you just talk, talk us through the platform briefly? It's the it's the first ever digital platform made for people who care about our future on this planet that is interactive. So it's actually a completely different type of platform to, uh, let's say, VOD as we know it. It's not an AdVOD and it's not a TVOD. It's a free VOD platform that is focused on watch, connect, and act. Um, so that is a departure from other platforms that are out there. And it's deliberate because we uh, don't really feel that it would be appropriate to try to compete with any of them. We would rather just forge our own path and find our own audience worldwide. It's as much a social network, if you like, as well as a uh, VOD platform. Is, is that right? Am I right to categorize it like that? I, I can basically sort of explain. It's a, it's a video platform. We are curating content for it by acquisitions we're producing some uh, original content. We're co-producing original content. 
we're working, we're launching with 75 NGOs who are our launch partners for the platform. The, the, the exercise really is that people can come to the platform, watch content, and if that's all they want to do, they just watch it and then they go off the platform and do something else. But they can also watch something and while they're watching, they can engage. That means they can either donate to the NGO that's doing the work in the field to motivate the film that was made. They can share on social media, yes. Uh, there's a live function. They can actually become part of our world. They can volunteer uh, with various volunteer programs. They can uh, buy uh, uh, goods from sustainable local economies. So there's a whole number of different things people can do while they're watching. And presumably the communities around these fantastic NGOs are also going to be activated by them and encouraged to come to the platform as well. So you've almost got a ready-made audience. That's right. We have cross-marketing agreements with these NGOs. We're an ambitious network because we are going to start uh, our launch with biodiversity but we're going to actually cover all 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals in the course of one year. So in a way, it's an immersive experience of what the UN SDGs mean. And you know, we're telling stories about them. We're not teaching them to people academically because you can't retain yeah. uh, that, that kind of information, but you can experience them through these short films we're making and through the long forms that we're acquiring. Okay. Uh, and through the copros that we're doing with the NGOs. So we're starting with a, a, a block of biodiversity NGOs, and then we're going on to climate. Obviously, it's pretty appropriate. Yeah. Um, then we're going to circularity, because we're really interested in circularity in the form of circular economy. We're making a film about circular economy. And we're ending in our fourth quarter on community. Um, so it's a really, uh, it's, it's a broad scope, uh, but it's a, there's a lot of method to the madness because within these four quarters, our audience will be able to become part of the world that we've been living in for so many years, the world of uh, environment, the world of sustainable development goals and impact filmmaking. You mentioned short form there and long form. Yeah. So to give us an idea of the format of the content on there. So in terms of new content you're commissioning, is it a mix of both or is it mainly short form that you're you're going to be commissioning? We're doing two kinds of originals. One, we're making films about the projects our NGOs are doing in the field. So those are really going to be just to highlight, you know, the, these amazing stories that you never get to see in long-form television, but things that, you know, people like Sea Shepherd, WWF, Greenpeace, you know, that they're doing, the projects they're doing in the field. And the other one is original shorts. So, for instance, we just did a beautiful short with the team that made My Octopus Teacher. Uh, it's a film, again, it's, it's a different angle on the kelp forest, but it's a beautiful kelp forest story. Then we are acquiring long-form, we will, in the near future, be co-producing long form, and we're putting those on either the free section on Water Bear, but we also had to have a TVOD section where we will be showing feature dogs. So, when it comes to the business model, so it's it's free for consumers essentially to, and and I had a look and registered. Uh, when's the launch, by the way? Twenty fifth of November. Twenty fifth of November. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. We're super excited and you never know until you launch, right? You have to launch, see what it's like, and then make a plan. And, uh, and adapt as you go on. And, and I think maybe some other uh, uh, short-form SVOD services like Quibi maybe could take a leaf out of that book. But let's put that to the side for a second. Talking about the business model. So as we say, it's free for consumers as a transaction element of it. But when it comes to the industry, if you're acquiring long-form content, you're in the market to acquire. I mean, do you have similar budgets to the competing acquisitive platforms out there? I think we have competitive budgets to the startup platforms out there, yes. But we are a startup and we are working with a sponsorship model. 
So we are going to have to be careful until we have our bases covered with the bespoke sponsors that we're talking to. And it's also very important that the sponsors uh, are, they're curated in the form of actually a sort of moral compass uh, a system that we're using. And sponsors are only supposed to sponsor the Water Bear Network curated original production side of the network. But of course, sponsors cannot be associated with the NGOs. So we have to keep those two very much apart. We'll do that, you know, legally and visually. And sponsors can do a varying uh, type of sponsorship. Generally, blocks of programming. Sponsors care about certain SDGs, may get behind some of those. They might care about a certain species. They might care about oceans or plastics or air pollution. So that's how we're going to group them. When it comes to sponsors, you know, you've got to be pretty careful as well because, as, as we know, there's a lot of corporations out there who are greenwashing or looking to greenwash their brands. There's a, there's a lot of due diligence. There's a lot of intelligence behind it. And we're working with people that have extensive experience in this. And that's what I was, was talking about when I mentioned this moral compass system that we use. It's actually a real system. It's a real vetting system. Uh, and we have uh, board members uh, that are very, very familiar with this. I think it's a fantastic uh, model. And uh, I wish you all, all the very best with it. I can't, can't wait to see how, how things develop. Now, obviously, it can't have escaped your, your, your notice that we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the, is, is that a great time? Is it the best time to launch Water Bear? Obviously, we know that SVOD viewership is massively up as you're providing a, a free content option to consumers out there. And we're coming into what we all think is probably going to be quite a, a brutal winter when it comes to redundancies and consumer spending. Is, it a great, is there ever a great time to, to launch this? Or I think, Justin, you know the answer to that, which is uh, it's definitely not a great time to launch. It's a challenging time to launch. Um, I, I realize people are consuming a lot of content. They're on their computers and on their phones and on their television a lot. But at the same time, we're launching with you know finite access to each other as colleagues. We miss each other. Uh, as colleagues, you know, you really need to, you know, this is a tribe, this new company, you know, this new company is a tribe, tribes need to be together. Uh, so we can't wait for uh, things to normalize. Um, but we also didn't want to delay the launch because of COVID because we have our ducks in a row, the content is there, it's all produced, the systems are running. This beautiful uh, interactive software is fantastic. Uh, and, and wonderful to work with. So uh, I think it's, you know, it, it's, it's as most things during COVID, um, there's a lot of uh, uh, disadvantage to it. There's a lot of disadvantage to launching during COVID. But at the same time, it's a strength because uh, people are spending more time uh, watching. Um, and I also must say that our community uh, has become incredibly strong. I think people are really supporting each other and we are getting so much friendship and support from our community in um, not only in, in, in conservation and on and around the UN SDGs, but also the television and digital community, the media community. It's great to to see this launching at a time as well that I think, you know, perhaps uh, this is something that David Attenborough raised on uh, his talk with uh, Greta Thunberg at the Wildscreen Wild Festival last week. And he was, you know, talking about, you know, he was concerned the pandemic has shifted people's thoughts away from climate change because I think we were really getting to a crescendo, weren't we? I think, you know, almost a year ago now when there was a real sense of momentum and then all everybody can think of right now is COVID and how it's going to affect their business and their family over the next month or, or the next few months. 
we were talking last week about there's light at the end of the tunnel. People are talking about vaccines and, and testing and everything that will allow us to live alongside this this, this dreadful virus. Uh, and I think that's a realistic way that we've got to look at it. At that point, I think, you know, maybe we can really focus back on climate change. And do, do you see that as, as really coming back into the centre of, you know, everybody's consciousness? We're not focusing so much on COVID. We are actually looking ahead and saying someone has got to tell the stories now about climate change to have them on so that people can engage whenever their attention span, whenever their bandwidth allows. So we're not doing a single thing on COVID on Water Bear. We're actually working on everything that people are not doing media on right now not only to future-proof water bear, but to really work the strategy of somebody's got to do it and we might as well just fill that gap. I think it's remarkable that political leaders are spending so much time uh, talking about COVID numbers and talking about you know how we need to be very careful and stay at home. And I believe all that. I think they're absolutely right. But why are they not talking about the fact that 9 million people a year die of air pollution? Why are we not talking about that in politics? Why are we not addressing that fossil fuels, you know, companies are not only major CO2 emitters, but our health has way more threats than just COVID. And so we are interested in going there. We'd like to go and look at air pollution, we'd like to go look at plastics, we'd like to go and look at what's happening with overfishing and our oceans and all the subjects that will come back on the table once people have adjusted to COVID and the post-COVID phase. And obviously we're coming up to the US election, which is probably the single biggest event that could change the the direction of, of climate change, right? Because, you know, there's been a variety of different messages has come from the president. But I think Joe Biden is saying that, you know, they would they would uh, rejoin the Paris Agreement, which is, I think, every right-minded person would wish that to, to happen. There's a whole load of forces that are out there that will affect, I think, the, the public's appetite and knowledge and, and thirst for knowledge in this area. So I think, you know, it's a really fascinating time for you to, to launch. And I'm uh, really, you know, got my fingers crossed for you. Just for the rest of the content industry. So what what are you looking to acquire then when it comes to long-form content? Can you be specific about the type of, of content that you're looking for? We're finding, because we've done a lot of research on this, we'd like to speak to an audience that wants to be inspired. So we we definitely want to inform. We're not going to shy away from tough subjects. Um, but we can see from all the years of effort people have put into doom and gloom films, apocalyptic films, people don't have the bandwidth for them. People don't really retain information from films with lots of pie charts and and statistics. So we have gone uh, into a type of filmmaking that's more like my octopus teacher, which is just let's just make a film about someone finding a solution, doing something very cool that maybe I could do myself or I could do a version of myself. Um, We want to inform people in a way that makes them feel enriched and inspired, and that makes them want to communicate with each other about this on social media. Um, and, and it's a bit younger skewed, so Water Bear skews a bit younger than uh, the classic kind of um, blue chip type documentary. It's more fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say that would, that would characterize what we're looking for. We're looking for short form uh, as well as long form. Um, but it does have to fit this sort of look and feel that I just described. You can see the look and feel. We're going to put out some social media packages very shortly. They'll give you a promo reel and a bunch of social media spots. And when you see them, you're going to see what Water Bear feels like. 
You know what a water bear is? I do. I've been doing my research. I I understand. Now, I'm not going to, there's no way that I'm going to be able to describe what it is now to to any sort of degree. But so it's an animal that can, can survive extremes and it can dry out and you can add water to it and it comes back to life. Yes. And it's extraordinary. I can recognize it when I see the, the when I've Googled it and I've looked at the, uh, the creature, I say, oh, it's one of those things. That's right. It stands for resilience. So a, a, a water bear, also called a tardigrade, can withstand anything from nuclear radiation to uh, living on the moon. You know, they were spilled by accident by an Israeli rocket on the moon. About really? Really? They, they survive anything. Um, and we we like uh, resilience, and we like the, the the small genius that lies in the water bear. And our films are going to be like that, and our audience's values are going to be like that because we believe in resilience, resilience of nature, but we also believe in the resilience of human beings. All right. Okay. Well, what we'll do, we'll we'll put some links to Water Bears sign up page and social networks as well in the description of the podcast. So everybody go there and take a take a look. And anybody that has content that that sounds like it would be up your street, how how should they get in touch with Water Bear? I think they should come to our head of content, Andrea Walji. So we can put that on your uh, podcast as well. Perfect. Um, we're looking to indeed acquire and co-produce. We're looking for people, even if they have fantastic access and a great idea, we are really serious about wanting to uh, create uh, a, a, a healthy, happy, resilient community of water bear producers and water bear viewers. So now it's time in the show for Story of the Week, where my guests get to highlight the key TV industry news stories that's caught their eye this week. Janet, what's your Story of the Week? I will have to say that um, I woke up, actually it was this morning, and I was thinking about what you, uh, what I could say about this. Um, I would say that the Korean movie, I'm Korean-American, and the fact that the Korean movie Parasite, which won Best Film uh, Academy Award um, recently, it had won another um, film award in Asia. But I'm really excited about the fact that a foreign language film, and especially a film made by my uh, fellow uh, countrymen, Korean, which is also filled with so many cultural aspects of the country, is making a mark and those storytellers are being recognized globally. So I think it's about, you know, the fact that the future looks really bright for different voices, especially when diversity is so important. Uh, and the fact that there is an audience globally for uh, international and diverse filmmakers. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we actually did a, a South Korean focus on, on telecast a few weeks ago. And you know, it was remarkable thinking that the biggest TV formats are now coming out of Korea, the biggest bands in the the whole K-pop movement. And as you say, filmmaking is, is you know, is having a really, really incredible time right now. So uh, so in terms of the whole cultural wave that's coming over, it's, uh, it's quite something to see. I'm very proud of it as a fellow Korean. Yeah, well, so you should be. Ellen, what's your story of the week? Well, my story of the week is the great news that 27 European environment ministers have committed to protecting at least 30% of the EU's land and seas by 2030. That's a really big step forward, isn't it? I mean, that is a huge, well, I can't even imagine the, uh, the, the amount of land and sea that is, but it's, it's a lot. They've also uh, said that they are committing to net zero emissions by 2050. That's so promising and so exciting. That really ripped me off my chair. I'm really happy about it. That's another thing about, you know, we're, we're looking for positives out of uh, COVID-19. And I really hope that, you know, these changes that we saw, lots of things are accelerating, aren't there? Digi- you know, digital adoption and lots of uh, things. And I'm really hoping that things like more sustainable transport methods, 
electric cars that they you know they come in I mean, at the moment electric cars for me they're so unaffordable a, a tesla family car tesla is almost a hundred thousand pounds right now you know it's it's uh i think that you know all of these changes in terms of the adoption of things that are really going to make a difference i'm really hoping that they are a positive byproduct of of covid in terms of the way that we adopt new technologies going forward this is really good news i hope the uk is part of that i know it's 27 eu ministers <laughs> justin i believe they are okay good and now it's time in the show where my guests get to nominate their hero of the week and who or what they want to tell to get in the bin. Ellen, who's your hero of the week? It can only be Svenja Schulze, the German uh, environmental minister, um, because she led this group of 27 environmental ministers and brought this to uh, the EU climate policy chief, Franz Timmermans. Well, congratulations to her. Janet, who's your hero of the week? Um, you know what? Uh, the United States uh, is uh, is going through some tumultuous time. But um, I would have to say, and I don't want to be cliche, but I would say Dr. Fauci has to be my hero. Um, one, you know, with all the stresses that's, you know, hitting him uh, on an, I mean, on an ongoing, um, you know, uh, way, the fact that every time he is on television, whenever he is interviewed, his ability to hold his composure and his dignity is amazing. And in all these stresses uh, that you know we're all going through, he is definitely somebody I admire. And if I think I'm gonna you know lose it or I'm I'm stressed and I don't know how to keep my I just say look at Anthony Fauci, and he's somebody that I feel is a hero, uh, not just because of his science, but because as a human being. His ability to stay so professional, composed, and elegant, uh, eloquent, uh, should I say, uh, and elegant, I guess, mm. uh, in a time um, that there's so much scrutiny on him is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the whole of America's looking to him. A previous guest talk, talked a little bit about immunologists and physicians, and they being the rock star of the age. And I certainly... You could say that Anthony Fauci is, is, is one of those. Absolutely. And Ellen, who are what? Are you telling to get in the bin? I can only think of one person, and that would be Jeffrey Katzenberg, one of the most admired executive producers and, and business professionals in Hollywood. I am immensely disappointed at the result around Quibi, and that comes, one, because I'm a woman, and I have only known the media industry from the wrong side of the fence. So I've always been alone. I've always been an entrepreneur by myself. I've never had the kind of um, intelligence around me that he has had in Hollywood um, where he could have easily consulted with people on, you know, how efficient would it be to set up this network made up of shorts with lots of Hollywood celebrities and the right structure that they have. So mm. I, I am very disappointed um, in Jeffrey Katzenberg. And I, I don't think that a woman would have been given the same backing that he has. It's, Almost a lot, like you know, I can only uh, uh, liken it to sort of a train wreck in slow motion. Because I mean, over the last few months, we saw the pandemic coming through. We knew Quibi was coming, and I, I've you know I've had lots of conversations with lots of different people about this. And right from the get go, I don't think I saw anybody that said this is going to work. This is going to be massive. Yeah. So I think, I think that's from the first point, and then. When they decided to go ahead, even after the pandemic had start, really started to hit home, they decided to, to launch in any case. It seemed like there was just, there was so much money wrapped up in this and there was an imperative to launch it no matter what. Yeah. Whereas we all know about short form content, it's, yeah. been, it's about learning, testing, knowing your audience, adapting and building on what works. My my disappointment in Quibi is that it seems to have been created in this kind of bubble. Um, instead yeah. of really saying, let's do some audience research, let's look at what other people are doing, let's talk to the other platforms, let's check out different revenue models. I mean, it took me 12 years to put Water Bear together because I knew if we just do VOD, we will fail. We can't yeah. make it in this competitive marketplace unless 
we have a clever business model with several revenue streams which come from this whole interactive world, I think shorts without interactive elements don't make sense. Yeah. That's right, and there, were, there was no there was no ability to share the content, was there either? Oh. And I think there was, yeah, it was. Or, or to interact with this world of you know these short dramas and various things. It it just, yeah, I just find it disappointing, and I I think that sometimes um, sometimes bubbles have to be called out exactly as that. It's it's yeah. disappointing, and you know they could have done amazing things with you know a billion dollars. They could have done. Fantastic fantastic things with the dollars. What it will prove is that there's probably not too many big swings like this are going to be happening in Hollywood for a few years after this has been such a, uh, you know, well, let's call it what it is, a disaster, right? Hopefully the 200 or so employees at Quibi will, uh, you know, will, will, uh, will end up somewhere somewhere else in the in the coming uh, coming weeks yes i hope we wish them all the best yes definitely janet what's going in your bin okay so this is kind of a, a an odd thing but um i was really i think you know living on the east coast in dc i i was really looking forward uh to a really wintry cold winter so everyone can you know force themselves to be socially a distance <laughs> uh but now it looks like la nina uh, it's going to be a La Nina winter, which means it's going to be kind of uh, warm and um, not so snowy. So I was hoping that, you know, for a wintry where people would be under lockdown in their home and not, you know, uh, not get out too much um, and hopefully help the virus. But it looks like we're going to get a, a La Nina, which means it's going to be quite balmy in D.C. So um that's that's what I'd like to get in the bin. Yeah. Okay. Oh well. You you never know. You never know. There might uh, the snow might come to the to the rescue. I've been in DC for real screen on a couple of occasions when it's been like minus twenty. You never know. You might get the uh, the polar vortex might come to save us. Yeah. Oh gosh, I forgot about that. Remember that was like a new thing. You know, uh, I remember walking from my car to a restaurant, going, "Why is it so cold?" <laughs> Um, so I was kind of hoping for a polar vortex, but, you know, I got, you know, the weather forecast right now is La Nina. Um, but, you know, I guess there's some benefit of that. People get out outside and, you know, socialize, uh, uh, distance socialize that way yeah. might be good. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I said, well, let's, let's, let's all try and make the most of, uh, of, uh, of winter while, uh, while we can. And hopefully, you know, put, 2020 behind us and look forward to hopefully better days in uh, uh in 2021 i hope so too justin janet and ellen it's been fantastic having you both on the show really appreciate your time with us this week all the best in everything that you're doing and uh, we look forward to seeing you in person very soon thanks thank you so much justin lovely to see you now we're talking about content with a purpose on this week's show and I'm also delighted to be joined by one of the industry leaders in the natural history sector CEO of Icon Films and chair of this year's Wild Screen Festival Laura Marshall hi Laura thanks for coming on the show hi Justin lovely to be here thank you natural history production has presumably been one of the sector's hardest hit by the pandemic how do you see the current and future outlook for TV's natural history sector well, that's a really, really interesting question because it's there are two parts to it. Yes, I think that when um, COVID hit and productions were um, suspended because it was unclear which borders were going to close and which countries were safe to continue filming in, there was an absolute halt in production. But very soon... Um, Natural history filmmakers tend to work in exceptional circumstances doing very difficult things. So getting their head round a pandemic was just another one of the problems that they face. And I think people learnt um, and put some really interesting solutions in there. And one of them, of course, was working much more with in-country crews, going to find talent who were already in the countries that they were working in, and connecting with them in order to get the projects up and running. Because as you know, these big projects often have very, very long timelines. So too much of a hiatus can be quite damaging. So yes, it was an initial hit, but I think that a lot of production is up and running again. And a lot of this is obviously seasonal as well, isn't it? Because, you know, if you're going to 
be uh, covering the floods on the Okavanga Plain or something like that. That only happens at one one point in the year. So it's really important to to have those international cooperations. Absolutely. And as I think all of us are aware, I think our climate change is having an impact on that as well. So you might have been able to predict within two or three weeks of eggs hatching or floods coming or the rains coming. That is no longer the case. And so increased flexibility in schedules was always something that people were working on. But this was, I'm not going to use the um, well, I just did the unprecedented word. But again, I am going to keep saying exceptional, exceptional challenges to the seasonality. Those projects which have shorter schedules will, will not be able to pick up the behaviour that they were looking for in the timescale available to them. Um, and in some cases will have had to extend. So do you think climate change is still on people's agenda? You know, obviously coronavirus is that's all we can seem to think about at the moment. Obviously, a lot of natural history programming is interlinked with climate change, as as we know. Do you think it's you know still a priority for people? I hope it's not just me wishing this, but I think it is. I think that people are understanding there is more of a connection between the current pandemic. COVID-19 and climate change and that we are all interconnected and understanding how we interconnect and how that is not only our wildlife but our environments, our habitats, how we are all connected with seasonality and with behaviours and with how we as humans have treated our planet, I think is connecting people back again to climate change. And they can, of course, see it on their doorsteps. They can see it out of their windows in a way that is undeniable. Now, Wild Screen Festival took place last week. You're the chair of of this year's event. The event sector is another area of the industry facing challenges. So how did it go? Well, it went very well indeed. Thank you for asking. And um, while it was a virtual festival, we did have some live elements with real people in a studio holding it together. We had the marvellous Lizzie Daly Mm. who presented it for us and gave us that much needed interaction with a live host connecting with people and bringing in people who could be um, socially distanced, close to her and to interview. But By the um, end of the festival, we had had 1,815 attendees from all over the world. Having it virtual meant that we were scheduling things from 9 o'clock in the morning till 10.30 at night, UK time. And people were popping in right at the beginning of the day, depending on where else they were in the world. But it also, because we have gathered together all the sessions and they will be able to be accessed afterwards it really became cheaper and therefore more accessible to far more people than what would have been um, a live event in Bristol. So can you take us through the highlights? Um, I think there were a couple of highlights one was the increased accessibility the fact that people were coming not flying to Bristol, but logging on and could really choose the sessions that they want to see and store up the ones that they wanted to see later. So that was a huge highlight Mm. for me. Obviously, there were some very big names there. It was great that National Geographic brought James Cameron to uh, the small screen and he told us about the projects he's working on. And having a star and an industry titan like him was just Mm. amazing. And then, of course, having Sir David Attenborough and Greta Thunberg talking in conversation in a in quite a, a mediated conversation, which allowed them to look at some of the issues that they both care about deeply in depth was really important. And then being able to release that publicly afterwards meant that the impact of the festival had a much bigger impact than it might have been had it just been for the delegates just been accessible for the delegates but there were so many things the panda awards were great the fact that we had an official selection of films rather than just the panda awards meant that people could find hidden treasures that they might not have come across and again it speaks to people wanting to know more about the world in which they live and the films that they might make in the future 
So what have you learned then from staging this year's event virtually? I think the biggest thing that we have learned is that people are hungry for content. They are hungry to understand about how they can hone their craft. They are hungry for connectivity with people across the world. And the fact is that you can do it in a virtual way um, means that we have more options ahead of us, whatever whatever the world throws at us in the next 12, 24 months. And you say 24 months because obviously it's every two years, isn't it, the Wild Screen Festival. So do you see the next event as having a virtual component as part of it? I think inevitably it will because, one, it allows us to be far more sustainable in terms of not having to encourage people to travel. And But I also think that it makes it, you know, it's expensive traveling to places. It's expensive finding somewhere to stay and to be in a place for one time. If you can attend virtually and get as much out of it as you need, then having a virtual element is going to be really, really important. That doesn't make up for the fact that you want to see old friends. And of course, a lot of filmmakers spend a lot of time out and about on location or hidden in an editing room. And so actually connecting with people in the flesh is also very attractive at times. So I'm hoping that we will be able to be together in two years' time. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. Laura, thanks so much for spending the time to come on the show and and having a chat with us. And we'll post a link to Wild Screen Festival. So is there any way that anyone can go and uh, enjoy any of the content on the website right now? Absolutely. So at the moment, um, we can only tempt you with the um, sessions that were filmed and the films that were filmed, but we are putting together an archive pass so that people who weren't able to attend the festival during um, last week can see the sessions in the future. Laura, thanks again. Great to have you on the show and hope to see you in Bristol very soon. Come and see us, Justin. Thank you so much for having me on here. That's great. And I, I just want to say I thought that the Wild Screen team did an amazing job. It wasn't me. It was Sue Martineau and her team. They just really worked their socks off. Very good. Well, well done to them. Speak to you soon. Thanks, Justin. It's that time in the show to go over to Riga again and speak to Gertz Leases from K7 Media. Hello, Gertz. How are you this week? Hi, Justin. Hi, everyone. All good. Uh, enjoying uh kind of uh, Nordic autumn with some nice leaves, which I don't get so much in London. So that's the upside. (laughs) Yeah, but you're by the Baltic. Like to have these these nice leaves in autumn, you need uh, the temperature difference between day and night. So that's why we don't get them in London, because the nights are not cold enough. But like, that's why you get these very nice autumns, like somewhere in Canada or or Nordics or also here in the Baltics. They are turning a bit. We We have got some golden leaves around the place. I have to say, it's the best season, isn't it? Autumn is has got to be the best season of the year. Everyone has its purpose, right? <laughs> yes, that's a good link into what we're talking about this week, which is content with a purpose. And, uh, you know, had a fascinating chat earlier on in the show with Alan and also with Janet about natural history programming, but also the wider aspect of creating content for the public good. So what's your focus for this week, Gertz? Well, today I think I would like to focus on three different streams in fact and programming, which I think have been quite characteristic for this pandemic's time, particularly. Even though a good share of these shows I'll be talking about obviously have been at least partly developed and produced before we even knew about the virus, Uh, These substreams or trends could be defined as celebrating and also surviving nature, loving all things local and also helping businesses and jobs. And the one thing on that universal arch across all three of these, that bigger picture, the purpose they carry, of course. And before COVID-19 hit, 2020 was said to be an even bigger year for climate change and environmental programming, with growing broadcaster and audience demand as a result of the growing crisis. 
And although the virus managed to put many planned activities on hold, quarantine even reinforced people's appreciation of the natural world. And the overriding sense is that this situation is an opportunity to reset the path we were on. What we are seeing as a result is a shift towards a practical, inspirational programming about how we rebuild our lives, economies, and the world. And the current environment may end up accelerating this moment even further. Shows in this category range from those focusing on saving the planet, like Sir David Attenborough's latest work, A Life on Our Planet, in which his message is almost wholly about the need to act to save the planet and wildlife he has spent so many decades chronicling to Australian ABC's Fight for Planet A, or climate change, which is very much taking the positive consumer-led approach with plenty of practical tips on things we can all do instead, to popular talent undertaking their own personal smaller missions, little steps we can relate to, like in Denmark, where a well-known host is setting out to save the butterflies, bees, and wild plants in DR1's Doc Give Us Nature Back. Or another Australian show, Save the Shark, in which the Aussie surfing champion and environmental activist Mick Fanning is out on a personal mission to show why great white sharks are key to our planet's uh, biodiversity. And he is doing that despite surviving a serious shark attack himself in the past. It's a perfect way to turn a personal account of one man's journey to overcome a traumatic, life-changing event into a wider examination of how to help save a species. And I believe that this kind of micro to macro way of storytelling is key in getting audiences to engage with environmental programming. No, it's an interesting way into the subject, isn't it? Mm. How about the survival of the human species as we're all going through this pandemic? Well, if we are moving on to the survival of human species, it's in the midst of a global health crisis in a situation where we are almost like all participating in one giant can we live without kind of reality show, themes of survival seem particularly resonant, don't they? For classic survival shows, the big question this year is how do we produce these shows that rely so much on a sense of exotic, foreign, extreme location in a world where international travel is still difficult and unpredictable. This is where the advantages and disadvantages of production hubs such as survivors based in Fiji come into play. In theory, a well-run, controllable reality set like this should be able to operate under workable guidelines. But given the huge numbers of personnel involved, the crews can range anywhere between 200-300 people, fragile island infrastructure and more importantly, rapidly shifting international travel bans and uh, quarantines, booking any production into the Fiji location has so far proved impossible. And slowly, alternative solutions are emerging. The first Mexican adaptation of Survivor, uh, for instance, managed to go ahead in uh, the Dominican Republic. And in Sweden, they are trying out the first domestically shot version of the format in a northern archipelago. So I think we can expect the Nordic noir genre enter the reality space now as well. And similarly, the British version of uh, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here is going to be shot in Wales, not in Australian jungle. As with the Swedish survivor, this enforced change could well become the catalyst for a creative reboot of both formats. Whether it's going to be just temporary still needs to be seen. But if turning out successful... For distributors of these formats, it may actually open new avenues for sales as they give them a more manageable version that might sell more widely than the big budget originals requiring shipping hundreds of crew and stars to exotic destinations. Other long-standing survival formats are also taking uh, on new relevance in the current situation and are currently worth looking at with fresh eyes, especially those not reliant on exotic locations. Israel, for instance, has become the latest territory to air Benajai's format stripped, in which participants have all of their belongings, including their clothes, taken away from them, and then each day allowed to retrieve one item in a process which aims to help the participants establish which items they truly value and what they can live without. And then in search of other challenging natural environments that don't involve traveling to remote islands or jungles, Producers are also increasingly turning to missions on water. 
which uh, we can curve out as even uh, another subtrend. UK's ITV this fall is launching their new five-part celebrity challenge series, Don't Rock the Boat, in which 12 famous faces are competing to row the roughly 500 miles, I think, length of Britain. In the Netherlands, SBS6 are doing something similar this autumn, with five celebrities setting out on a sailing adventure in all aboard under the guidance of a five-time world champion. And this show is, by the way, an adaptation of Rabbit Formats over the Atlantic. South Koreans also launched a celebrity sailing adventure recently, featuring four male stars setting out to sail the Pacific on a yacht. And in Denmark, sailing the Danish coast series sees a television celebrity and his family sail along the Danish coastline, meeting interesting Danes and experiencing the sights of Denmark, including those of their childhoods. And once again, it's an enforced but enjoyable domestic twist to a hugely popular series there that has previously seen the family sail the world. So it's all aboard boating formats then by the sounds of it. Yes, boating and, and, and in general going from global to local in a way. This actually brings me to the next trend, which I defined as lowing all uh, things local. Because in recent months, we are also seeing everything from travel shows, like I already mentioned, to cooking, everything turning to exploring local flavors instead. And these shows obviously not only save the schedules logistically, but also are there to facilitate the revitalizing of damaged local industries, promoting local tourist attractions, products and brands, and to bring people back to them. There are countries like Singapore, for instance, where such initiative is even specifically supported by government funds. And these programs can take a shape of a magazine show or a docu-soap, or in some cases like uh, the Belgian show, which is called Across Belgium, add a fun, interactive, real-time timeline on the broadcaster's website where the fans can not only follow the presenter's journey, but also plot their own trip and even arrange to join the production and route. So passing through the loud for local, we have actually already arrived at the last subtrend, and um, which I want to focus on today, which is helping businesses and jobs. So we've got the global trends, we've got these local trends here, which is which is all about focusing on domestic businesses, if you like, or domestic activities. So helping businesses and jobs, what are you seeing there then? Uh, behind the scenes, business reality shows have always provided uh, a way to combine workplace high-stakes drama with eye-opening insights into how familiar brands operate and some useful take home on how business and finance actually work. And in the middle of a global pandemic, all those financial dramas, dilemmas and challenges are obviously magnified tenfold, giving viewers an intriguing opportunity to see how business leaders and owners of all kinds grapple with an unprecedented situation. For Discovery, for instance, it has been an excellent opportunity for a follow-up to its business experiment, Undercover Billionaire. Protagonist Stearns Lending founder Glenn Stearns ditched his name and his fortune a year ago to see if he could recreate success anonymously by starting a small business in 90 days out of nothing in Erie, Pennsylvania. However, his slated one year on return now come only after he could spend weeks locked down on the West Coast amid the pandemic. And the business he would set up, Underdog Barbecue, had had to undertake a serious pivot. Well, it's actually reflecting what a lot of people are having to do in business and pivot and think about new, new ways of doing things. Absolutely. Or in Denmark, for instance, Dragon Dance team of dragons have been spending time traveling around the country and visiting their investments and actually trying to help them during the virus crisis. And the new episodes take on the difficulties of having to rapidly pivot to online sales versus opening new stores, for instance, and how to save the jobs in such a time of crisis. And uh, there are other examples, like in Asia, Pan Regional Channel AXN has collaborated with web hosting company GoDaddy to produce a business reality show called Project Go, uh, with the aim of supporting struggling Filipino entrepreneurs, for instance. 
In that show, 20 contestants with the most compelling ideas pitched to a distinguished panel of business experts uh, via video conferencing with the top four ideas then heading to a bootcamp training before the projects are presented in the final round, almost like X Factor of, uh, <laughs> of business. And then winners will get the chance to kickstart their venture online with GoDaddy and receive one million in funding in the local currency. So there are numerous examples all around the world. When it comes to the UK, The Apprentice has been uh, delayed somewhat. The next series of Apprentice, they've been recently uh, airing a, a best of show. How businesses are all dealing with this pandemic, I think you're right. I think that could make some really interesting new formats and new undercover shows. Yeah, it's practical. It's been inspirational and definitely provides a lot of drama. Very interesting. Well, thank you, Gertz. That's how we've been going global, we've been going local, and we've also looked at interesting business pivots and formats and shows that are dealing with that. So thank you so much for your time this week. Look forward to speaking with you next week. Thank you. Talk soon. Well, that's about it for another week's show. As always, thanks for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the show and share it with friends and colleagues. We've set up a new networking group for listeners to Telecast called Telecast Community. It's a place to discuss the TV industry issues raised in the show. And we'd also love to hear your suggestions for future show topics and guests. Just search Telecast Community in the group section on LinkedIn and we'll see you there. This week's telecast was sponsored by Moore Kingston Smith. If you want to hear more about our advertising and sponsorship packages, please email justin at boomdialogue.com. That's justin at boomdialogue.com. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers. On next week's show, my guests include YouTube's head of originals, Luke Hyams. Until next week, as always, stay safe.